Well, hello to all of you. Uh, Linda's doing okay. Um, she's uh, changed her chemotherapy. It's now two injections in her backside, which are like jelly. Uh, not her backside, the injections. <laughs> and uh, so far, so good. Um, her hair is coming back uh, after she got off the first treatment, which was rough which was an oral medicine, and now her hair is coming back with uh, some of her natural color. But she's gone out and bought a bunch of wigs. Boy, she looks hot in those wigs, I'm telling you. <laughs> Especially that blonde one. Hi, baby. She's watching. <laughs> she knows. <laughs> but she's doing okay. Um, we won't know if we're making any progress with the new medicine until, uh, uh, well, I guess another four weeks or so when she has some tests, but I wanted to always take time to thank you for your prayers. Um, you know, it takes effort to make prayer. It's called the sacrifice of prayer for a reason, but sometimes we don't feel up to praying and we're tired, but uh, you know, my little and, uh, and, and Mr. Ed, we appreciate your prayers, and I know those of you who've been through trials, you know that sometimes you're just out of gas, and you need the strength of the brethren. Remember when Jesus, the night before he was crucified, Jesus was out of gas, you know, and, and he was really down and he was very low and the Father sent him an angel to strengthen him. And so I mentioned that so that we would pray that you would do that, that you would send an angel, that you would pray that God would send angels to those who are on the prayer list to strengthen them because, uh, you know, there's times when you're, when you're feeling down and you're, you're, you're not feeling well, you just get out of gas. I know I've been that and I'm sure, been there and I'm sure many of you have too. Well, I was ordained an elder, preaching elder back in 1993, so I forget how many years that is now that I've been preaching, but it's over 20 years now. And, um, you know, once you become an elder, people like to talk to you about the Bible and like to talk to you about the work, and, you know, you can start to categorize conversations. You'll see conversations that will keep coming up from different people, from, you know, as you travel around, people will say, they ask you questions. One of the most common questions that I receive, I don't know about uh, Bill and Wayne and, and David, but uh, one of the questions that I've received a lot, has been asked a lot, is how come we're still here? And all those people went away. Um, I have these uh, poster boards of pictures of the Poconos. I've mentioned them many times here, uh, of articles from magazines that show the crowd up to 19,000 people at the Poconos and all that. And Linda and I have decided we're going to donate them to this congregation. If you guys want to frame them and put them up in the church, it would be a nice piece of history uh, for the church to have. And I have about six of them. They're nicely uh, on a poster board. If you want them, we're going to, we're going to donate them to, the, to this building. But why are you still here? Why am I still here? And everybody else is gone. Do you ever think about that? Did that question ever come up in your mind? How come I'm still here? You know, I haven't changed, you haven't changed, why are we still here and all those other 140,000 people are gone? What was the difference? And I've pondered that question, because I don't think of myself as being all that smart. Um, and I see the group here, you know, I mean, we're all normal, common people. Why are we different than all those other people who left? And I think we've come up with an answer. And the answer has a lot to do with, we get the first commandment. Thou shalt have 
no other gods before me. We get that. And the folks who left and the folks who walk away or the folks who, folks who read this book and put it down and say, no, it's not for me, they don't get that first commandment. They don't understand that there is a final authority in the universe that we have an obligation to be in subjection to. And I've concluded, and I am concluding more and more as I think about this, that is the difference. The first commandment. And that's why it's the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Let's read it in Deuteronomy 5. There are other places, but we'll, I've chosen Deuteronomy 5. And Moses called all Israel, this is right in verse 1, and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day that you, notice what he says, learn them, keep them, and do them. First you have to learn them, you have to understand them. And when you understand them, you have to actually keep them. And he says, keep them and do them. You know, there's no doubt, in any, there can be no doubt in anybody's mind that the law isn't just written in your heart and you just need to love the Lord and everything will be fine. Because he says very clearly here, learn them, keep them, and do them. There's doing involved. There's some doing involved. Brethren, I think that's why... You know, I I don't want to give any of us a big head about it because I think it has nothing to do with vanity or ego. It just has to do with who we are. It has to do with, you know, the Father called you for a reason. He he personally decided to call each and every one of us. It tells us that in Scripture. The Father called you, led you to Christ, and then Christ teaches you in His church and through Revelation and through His Bible, through His Word. You know, it says over, let's read the commandment now as we move on. It says in uh, verse 7, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness or any living thing that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath or, the, or in the earth. What's the difference between the God we worship and the gods that they made in Egypt or the gods that they, that they made in Babylon or all those other gods or the gods that they have in Rome. What, are the, what is the difference between the true God and all of those other creations of man that are fashioned out of wood and stone and silver and gold? What's the difference? The difference is that those gods that are made out of inanimate objects, they don't talk. They don't communicate. Now, maybe there are demons that speak through those things, but they don't communicate. Our God does. He communicates to us. He came down and lived with us for a while, for 33 and a half years, and He communicates with us. He's called the Logos. He gives us His Word, and if we study His Word, it leads us into all truth. If we live according to it, He communicates with us. Those others, they don't talk. They're dumb. They're blind. You know, they're mute. There are other gods. For everyone who's ever lived, there are other gods, small g. Well, of course, there are. But I want you to remember something. And this is, I think, we're seeing the, a growing importance of this. And that is, God is a title. It's not His name. 
It's a title. It's not his name. And this is not going to be a sermon about God's name because that's a long, complicated subject. But God does have a name. You know, we don't know exactly what it is. We know what the Tetragrammaton says, Y-H-V-H. And I think we can pretty well assume that the, one of the vowels is an A, Yah, because Hallelujah, Yah, Elijah, Isaiah, uh, particularly Hallelujah, which is praising Yah. So we're pretty sure it's Yah. Now, is it Yahweh or Yehovah? It doesn't matter. You know what? If you call me Solankowitz, I know you're talking to me. If you call me Zelenkevich, I know you're talking to me. So I don't want to create that straw man argument that you have to say it a certain way because that is a false doctrine. That is a heresy. You don't have to say it a certain way. You do the best you can with the knowledge that we have. And I call him Yahweh when I refer to him in his name. But God is a title. It's a class of being. And it isn't actually his name, but, you know, that's, as I said, this isn't a sermon on name. But there are false gods, aren't there? There are false Christs. Anything that you put a higher level of importance on in your life, or from which you draw the, uh, what, the what would we call it, the, the reason that you do something is the final authority in your life, you know. I'm going to, you know, do something because the culture I live in demands that I do it. That's making the culture that you live in into a god. We have political parties, we have football teams, we have places we work. You know, we're all part of different cultures, and some of that doesn't have anything to do with right and wrong, and it's okay to be affected by those things, but when that is the driving force between your moral decisions, you're turning it into a god. You're turning it into a god, so we can do that. How about uh, false Christs? Nobody of the, of the three, of the two, two and a half billion people on the earth who are Christians... That means they named the name of Jesus Christ. Of the two and a half billion people, one-third of humanity is Christian, according to the demographics. Google it. You can check. One-third. Remember the Wormwood Star falls on one-third of the fresh water? If you read through the prophecies of Revelation, you always tell you one-third this, one-third that, one-third. Why is that? And Satan pulled one-third of the, of the angels away from heaven. It's interesting. But one-third of humanity, what the, the Scripture refers to as the fresh water, names the name of Jesus Christ, but are they following the true Christ? Now, we know, you know, back in the years, the formative years of the churches of God, and I remember Garner Ted talked a lot about this, the real Jesus, you know, he, Garner Ted was kind of famous for that subject, talking about the real Jesus. Who is the real Jesus? People are worshiping a false Jesus. You know, there's not people running around the earth saying, hey, I'm Jesus. Well, I guess maybe there's a couple. <laughs> Come out of the bar and they call themselves Jesus. You know, they're a little, a few French fries shy of Happy Meal. But there's not too many people wandering around with a following that call themselves Jesus or Yahshua or the Lord. It's a real following using the real name of Jesus Christ, which is false. What they've done is they've taken 
the personage of Jesus Christ, and they've modified him so he fits what they want him to be, rather than what he really is, as a false Christ. And 99.9% of the Christians on this world are following a false Christ. You know, we get into the long hair thing. That's really a straw man argument. That's a very small part of it. You know, I don't, we, we don't know exactly what Christ looked like. We have a pretty good idea of it. But it's not about what he looked like. You know, not that, as GTA used to say, that pusillanimous pansy who's on the Michelangelo paintings. You know, Garnet had a way with words. But there are false Christs out there. And why are there false Christs? So Satan can take them away from the true Christ. And God allows it because he's testing the character of mankind. He wants to know who's going to live according to the word where it says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yeah, sit your, you know, create your own little Jesus Christ. Put him under a Christmas tree. You know, put him on the walls of church buildings. Create your own little Jesus Christ because he's more comfortable, he's easier to live with, he doesn't make demands on you. When, when he stood on the top of Mount Sinai, he said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, period, paragraph, no more discussion. You know, and brethren, if you get that one right, you've heard me say it before, if you get that one right, everything else is a whole lot easier. If you know God is saying it, you know, and you believe that he is the final authority in your life, even if it's something you don't want to do, ask Abraham. You know, because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his, his very precious son Isaac. So, you know, other gods. Or become a god unto ourselves. You know, so many people are so narcissistic in our society. We have leaders in politics, I won't say any names who are very narcissistic to think that they are the center of the universe. You see a lack of empathy and a lack of sympathy and a lack of caring. And brethren, it tells you that in Matthew, the love of many will wax cold. They have no love. It's all about them. It's all about power. They become a god unto themselves. Or an out-and-out rebellion is breaking this commandment where your ideas and concepts which are against his teaching, are what you prefer. Usually that happens when you don't listen to the whole story, when you're not listening to what is really true. You know, I always talk about the square of the truth. Everybody lives on the square of the truth. You live maybe up here, maybe I live down here. And we want to do what's called confirmation bias. So we tend to want to hang around people who live where we live on the square of the truth. And we end up in our culture with alternative truths. Truth isn't truth. You know, my story's better than your story. My team, my guy's my way. Your way does, there's, you have no value in your way. Instead of getting a whole story, what does it say in the scriptures? It says if you don't listen to the whole story, you are a, anybody know? Fool. You are a fool. You don't listen to the whole brethren. It's hard to listen to the whole story. Because you live somewhere on the square of truth. You have your worldview, and maybe this person down here sees it differently. But the truth is really the whole square, not parts of it. And so, yeah, there are parts of down here that 
really are wrong, but there are also parts up here that really are wrong. That's why the Bible says, neither turn to the left nor to the right. That's why it says that. And it's talking about exactly the things that we face in our day. You know, in the garden, we chose something that is only, when I say we, because you and I wouldn't have done any better than Adam and Eve. I Actually, I think I'd have done worse. I know me. I have my weaknesses. You do too. We all have a cross to bear of weaknesses. But we chose something in the Garden of Eden that's reserved only for God and God's family. The knowledge of good and evil. That's reserved only for God's. Scripture even says that we are God's. And it refers refers to us that way in several different ways, but in one place it comes right out and says it. For God only has the ultimate authority. But we weren't ready to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil yet. You know, if Adam and Eve, you know, you can extrapolate this out. If Adam and Eve have lived long enough in the garden and not sinned, eventually the Father would have allowed them to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and also of the tree of life. And it would have been a whole lot easier on mankind. But they didn't have the character yet. They didn't have the character of someone who is going to be in the God family. You know, he was looking for the development of character. He knew how to do it, and he knew it was going to be difficult. But he tried the easy way first. Teaching them, loving them, showing them. And it didn't work. He knew what he was doing. So out of the garden we were cast. But the no, that knowledge... To be properly used, and all you have to do is look at what we're living through in our day, brethren. You know, I'm 66. Jim is 84. Anybody older? 84? Steve, you're not 84. Okay, that's a lot of years, a lot of history. When were you born, Jim? 1934, right between the wars? A really great, uh, a very a time of great upheaval on the planet. And I haven't lived through the up Vietnam era for me, the end of the Korean War, but I didn't do any of that. You know, a lot of history learned there. Mankind's learning, learn, hopefully, we're learning too. So we were forced out of the safety of the garden to build character, the character necessary to handle such knowledge. Because we'd taken it. We'd, we stole it. We took something that did not belong to us. That we weren't prepared to handle. Out of the garden. I'll show you. And he has. So we're out there learning to develop the character to handle the knowledge. All the time while we're facing this new thing called death. There was no death before that. Who was the first one killed? Anybody? Nope. Nope. Abel was the first human being killed. The first one killed was an animal. No one had ever seen death before. They killed an animal, most likely likely an animal that Adam and Eve had affection for. 
God killed the animal and skinned the animal and gave them coats because they were not going to have the comfort of 72 degrees anymore. Out into the wilderness, they went with their animal fur. You know, you, I, was, I was saying to someone this morning, if you read Josephus, Flavius Josephus, the great Hebrew historian, he, he talks about the history of the Garden of Eden, which was handed down by word of mouth through the Hebrew tradition all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And a lot of times the patriarchs' lives overlapped. So they really had good contact with that original knowledge, <clears throat> at least back to Noah and probably before that, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Josephus says, it is likely that Adam and Eve had communication with the animals in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that interesting? Everybody have a pet? Most of us do. You, we have communication with our pet, right? My, I have, we rescue animals as a hobby, and I have a bunch of cats right now. And one cat can communicate to me with her eyes. I, I know what she's thinking. It's usually, I want petted or I want food. <laughs> but what if they did have communication? I don't know if it's telepathic. I don't know if that's actually even true. But it says it in Josephus. So I think I always tell my wife, because we have great affection for the creation, that if somebody abused an animal, when they come before Jesus Christ in their judgment, that animal's going to be standing right there. And they're going to have to give account for how they created Because God's word says, if you destroy the creation, I will destroy you. And I don't think Jesus would ever, ever harm an animal you know, short of make, short of, uh, for the purpose of food. But anyway, there, so death came, right? But he gives us his, he sent us out of the garden, but he gives us his guidance because our God communicates with us. And before his word was written down and given to us, he actually physically communicated through angels, through appearances, through revelation. You could, you could actually hear the words of God back in those days. I don't know if I'm going to make it through the sermon, but I appear seem to be losing my voice. <laughs> don't know what's going on there. But he gives us his guidance at every turn, so we are always confronted with a choice. Obey me. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Or go do what you think's best. And we'll see how that turns out for you. Our God speaks to us. He talks to us. He teaches us. He loves us. He lived among us and he died for us. And in our day, we have his word, his living word to show us the way and to know whether or not we will indeed learn it, keep it, and do it. And what does that mean? Jesus taught us to pray. He said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Very misunderstood three words, or four words. Thy will be done isn't a wish that everything would go swimmingly. Thy will be done is there in that model prayer to teach us that we need to align our will with His will. There's only one way you can do that, is to know the Word of God, to understand it. Our job is to align our will with His. So, again, it's a reinforcement of the first commandment. I am the Lord your God, therefore you do this, therefore you don't do that. I get to say and you don't. I am the final authority. 
I'm God, you're not. That's what it is. And uh, so we, we need to align our will with his. Also, we find in that word powerful examples. In the word of God, we have all these powerful examples of people who lived through this crisis, that crisis, this test, and that trial. Abraham. I'll mention a few. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. You know, Abraham wanted a son. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. I'm sorry, 22. Chapter 22. Abraham wanted a son. And uh, we see that in uh, verse 10. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son Isaac. Abraham had a strength and a weakness. His strength was that he always obeyed God. His his weakness was his great love for his son Isaac. And Abraham was going to be the father of all of us. And he was called upon by God to show that he had the same character as God the Father did. God the Father was going to sacrifice his son. He was asking Abraham to sacrifice his son as well. Wow. Right out of the boot, right out of the chute, right at the very beginning, right at the beginning of the plan of God in the book of Genesis, no less, we have an example of where God is showing that he wants us to become like him. Have the kind of character that he has. He was going to sacrifice Jesus. Okay, Abraham, you're going to be the father of everybody. We're going to see if you can be me. Be like me. Because that's our our goal, brethren, is to be like God. Be perfect as he is perfect. He says, Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called upon him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, lay not thy hand. And you know the story. And then we come down to the phrase where he says, for now I know. You know, Mr. Hendricks talks about this a lot, and I've been very inspired by his take on this particular phrase, because God never withdraws from us free moral agency, because the minute he does that, we're not ever going to have the character that he has. So we have to have free moral agency. We have to make a choice. And you like to think that God knew what Abraham would do. Well, those scriptures says he, he wasn't sure if Abraham would withdraw and not do it. But when he went to, ready to strike him dead, God said, now I know that you are indeed worthy of being the father of many nations. Free will, choices. He saw God as the ultimate authority. Either we do or we don't. Over all things, nothing held back. You probably have had the same talk with yourself. I don't think I could do it. I have two boys. If God asked me to kill my sons to prove my respect for his ultimate authority, let me put it this way. I don't know if I could do it. And it's not even a conversation you can have or you would even want to think about. But Abraham lived through that. He was a real human being. He could sit here in this pew right next to you. 
He could be in this building. He could be drinking a cup of coffee with you. Abraham was a real person. And Abraham lived through that challenge. And he wasn't tested on his weakness. We think we're tested on our weaknesses. He was tested on his strength. His strength was that he obeyed the Father, that he obeyed the ultimate authority in his life. I like to think of those the fathers because Jesus Christ is also called a father in the book of Isaiah. So you have Christ and the, the Father and the Son. But he was tested on his strength. But he was tested by virtue of his weakness. His weakness was his love for Isaac. His strength was the fact that he obeyed God. You know, And he became the father <clears throat> of many nations. The Israelite nations. Thank you, whoever put this up here. That's my Marco Rubio imitation. <laughs> anyway, what nations? Well, you can, you can find this in Genesis 49. France is Reuben. Uh, Simeon is scattered through Europe. Zebulun is Holland. Issachar is Finland. Dan is Ireland. Gad is the Swiss. Asher is Belgium and Luxembourg. Naphtali is Sweden. Benjamin is Iceland and Norway. Ephraim, which is part of Joseph, are the British nations. And Manasseh is the United States. Let's see if we can't be inspired by the United States. We're going to talk about the United States in Scripture now. You say, where is it? Well, it's there. You have to look for it. You have to put it together. But what is the name of our country? The United States of America. And it isn't just the United States, is it? It's North America and South America. Who are we named for? We're not called Columbia or Eric from the Vikings. We're called America. Where did that come from and what does it mean, America? Well, if you know your history... You know that there was a map maker who was also a very successful and wealthy explorer, Amerigo Vespucci, from, in, from Italy. And Amerigo Vespucci was named for his great-grandfather, Hamekhari, who is a Benjamite king of Israel, Hamekhari. Now, let me read this. I, I may have shared this with you before, but I find it so inspiring I thought I would bring it up again. The name of America. America is named after Hamekari, meaning literally the sons of Mekir, who was the firstborn son of Manasseh. We are, are, the name of our country comes right from the Manasseh tribe. Mekir was the firstborn son of Manasseh, son of Joseph. And this is in Genesis 50, Numbers 26, and there's a whole list here. Mekir was the forefather of the Gileadites. The commonly accepted explanation is that the name America comes from that of the explorer Americo Vespucci, who lived from 1451 to 1512, also called America. And after 1507, America is said to have been named in his honor. At all events, the name America or America, Marigo or America, is similar to the medieval appellations Americo. For the Jewish prince of southern France. The prince in Hebrew records of the time is referred to as Mechir or Hamechari. Arthur J. Zuckerman, a Jewish 
in a book, the book A Jewish Princedom in Feudal France, uh, 1972, notes that Hamekari was referred to as Almekari and as Americo and as Americus. Zuckerman describes how Makir, Americus, became a legend whose name was celebrated in the ballads of southern France and the neighboring regions many, many decades ago. In Hebrew, his name is Makir. He was also referred to in Hebrew as Hamekari. In, in biblical Hebrew, Hamekari means men of Makir or pertaining to Makir. In Hebrew writings of that time, however, Hamekari seems to have been a kind of diminutive nickname for Makir. At all events, the main point for our purpose is that the names Makir and Hamekari are transcribed from the Hebrew as Americo and similar terms. As a result, the name entered the stock of the names of the region. Americo Vespucci received the name and gave it to America. Divine Providence wanted it that the United States of America should be named by the the same name as the firstborn of Manasseh. We are Israel. This is a a country which was one of those nations that was a great gift to the world by God for the obedience of Israel. Abraham. Now we turn over to Revelation 12, brethren, and what I'm going to share with you is not dogma, because we're going to be talking about prophecy. I don't even want to call it speculation. I just want to call it interesting, an interesting parallel. In the Church of God, we used to have a, a I don't want to call it a doctrine because it really never reached that level, but we used to have a discussion of what we used to call the place of safety. How many remember going to, going to Petra and God was going to cover us there and protect us while the world burned? It is a heresy. That understanding is a heresy. We know that today. But this is where it comes from. It comes from this section in Revelation. Revelation 12, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, that you dwell in them. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And Jesus referred to this coming down of the devil from heaven back in Luke 10, where he says, yeah, I know, I was there, I saw it. This, Jesus said that past tense 2,000 years ago. So the way I see it, you may see it differently, the way I see it is that Satan is thrown to the earth and that's where he is, and that's where he's been. He says, and when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. That would be the woman, would be the virgin church. The man-child is Jesus Christ. And to the woman were given, and this is interesting, listen carefully. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for time, times, and half a time, away from the face of the serpent. So what happened to Israel? The great diaspora occurred. Israel broke up and it scattered across after 70 AD when Titus invaded Jerusalem and sacked the temple for the third time. The Israelites scattered. All these tribes that I read earlier that you can find in the scriptures, they scattered mostly into Europe, up into France. 
you know, we had the different iterations of the church up in the, up in the uh, oh, I can't think of the name now. But anyway, they came, the Waldensians and those, they came up through France and they were lived in the mountains for a while and eventually migrated into England. And it is said that the first Seventh-day Sabbath church in London was pastored by none other than Joseph of Arimathea, who used to be on the Sanhedrin. And so now you have Seventh-day Sabbath keepers starting to flourish in London, in England. And then the king comes along, King George or whatever king it was, and we start the Anglican church, and he declares himself separate from Rome, and that the English have a church, and you, you didn't have to be a member of the church, but you couldn't preach against it. If you preached against it, it was considered treason under the penalty of death. And so in 1661, around that time, there were seven Sabbatarian churches around London. The largest was pastored by John James. It was called White's Chapel. And John was accused by the king of treason because he would not yield or accept the Church of England and their dogma. So he was warned several times, but finally the king decided he had to be done away with. So he was hanged, drawn in quarter, his head severed and put on a post in front of White's Chapel as a warning to everyone else. There was great satanic persecution of the church in Europe at this time, in the, in the, uh, the late 1600s. Great satanic persecution. Now back here in the United States, which was then called the wilderness, because it was, there was a fellow by the name of Roger Williams, not the orchestra guy, but the historical guy, Roger Williams, and he purchased the land we now call Rhode Island from the Indians, and was even able to get a charter from the king, because the king didn't care what was happening over there in the wilderness. And he did something, he put something into the charter that had never been seen before on the face of the earth. In the charter for Rhode Island, he put the language that there will be religious freedom in his uh, colony of Rhode Island. Well, Rhode Island eventually became a state. And when the colonies were convening in Philadelphia, they thought that was a pretty good idea. So they borrowed the language from Rhode Island and they put that into our constitution there would be religious freedom. Now, there wasn't religious freedom up until that time because they were hanging and killing the Quakers. But now, since that time, religious freedom started in this place which was called the wilderness. And the Seventh-day Sabbath keepers who came into Rhode Island and Connecticut in that area migrated down through New Jersey and through Pennsylvania. The largest family was the Mumford family. Let me continue reading here. Rhode Island then became a destination in this new wilderness for Sabbatarians from Europe, away from the persecution of Satan over there. And many Seventh-day Sabbath churches sprang up in Rhode Island, and it became a state, and the U.S. borrowed the language from its constitution, which guaranteed religious freedom in our founding documents. One of the largest Seventh-day groups to migrate to the United States was the Mumford family, in the New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, over where I live, there is, a Sumfer, there is a cemetery where Mumfords are buried. They came in about 1668, around there, towards the end of the 1660s, which is almost exactly 350 years ago, brethren. 
time, times, and half a time. And they came to this place called the wilderness, which became the United States of Manasseh, America, the strongest nation ever to be on the face of the earth. And the symbol of this great nation is an eagle. Verse 14 of chapter 12, And to the woman, the virgin church, were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is protected, nourished, for time, times, a half a time, away from the face of the serpent. Now, am I right about that? You decide. As far as I'm concerned, that's the United States being talked about right there in verse 14. That's you and me. But we're past that time now. The protection, the nourishment of the gospel. Look around. And then think of what it was like 20 years ago. The protection of the gospel. What's going on in our government? Like Mr. Melzer mentioned in his opening prayer. They've taken down the Ten Commandments from the courthouses. They've kicked God out of the school. Remember the kid from Columbine? They published one of his um, letters to God in the uh, opinions in the newspaper out there. And he said, God, why weren't you there when this happened, when I lost this friend, that friend, and the other friend? He says, why weren't you there? And somebody wrote in and says, because you kicked me out. So are we at the end of that protection? A time of nourishment of the gospel in this land? Those people out there, those 2.5 billion people who name the name of Jesus Christ, do not know Him. And hereby do we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He says, I, He that says, I know Him and keepeth not His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, and ask is in the sense of Matthew 7, which is knock, seek, ask. It's talking about being a seeker of knowledge and understanding. Whatsoever we ask, we receive because we keep His commandments. And do not just that, but also do the things that are pleasing in His sights, because it's more than just the commandments. You need to have empathy. You need to have sympathy. You need to have love. If you're just keeping the commandments in a very sterile way, you're not doing what it says. You need to have empathy, sympathy, and love. Brethren, if there's hate in you for anyone or anything, something's wrong unless it's hate for sin. That's okay. And he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and they are not grievous. Keeping His commandments is difficult. Keeping the Sabbath, sometimes people lose jobs. Brethren, Scripture tells you, if you sacrifice anything in this life because you're doing what God says to do, He's going to reward you a hundredfold. Do you believe that? I do. A hundredfold. If you've given up owning a home because you decided to tithe and you couldn't swing all those things, you got a, you're going to have a hundred homes to dust. <laughs> There's a lot of dusting. Okay. I'm so lost. Let me find where I was in my notes. Okay. You know, it says 
in Scripture in many places, Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9, and we have a cross to bear. Every one of us has a cross to bear. You've all heard me say this before. You know, you don't know what my cross is. I don't know what yours is. Some are more obvious than others. You know, oh, to be, I have a, a heroine, uh, a, a kiddo in our family who is a heroin addict. Not in my family, but he's a, he's a nephew. Um, a heroin addict. I can't walk in his shoes. I don't understand what he's going through. But God looks at him as a potential son of God. It's really hard for me to look at him and see that because he lies and he steals and he's not a very nice kid. But he also has a problem. He's got a cross that's really heavy. I don't know if I could bear that cross. Alcoholism, sex addictions, you know, smoking, all these things that affect us. They're demons. They're demonic behavior that gets into us. They take advantage of our physiological weaknesses. You know, what does Satan always do? He looks for the sick lamb. He looks for the one that's not doing well and goes after him. So we have to remember to pray for those self. But um, bearing our cross, he says we have to deny who? Our neighbor? Our enemy? Our political foe? Immigrants? No, he says we have to deny ourselves. It's to give up what we have to help our brother. Love, empathy, sympathy, that's the basis of the Sermon on the Mount. Words that came right from Yeshua, right from Jesus the Christ. We have to be like Him. Is He going to give judgments? He is. That's not our job. It's not our job to judge our brother. It's our job to love our brother and even our enemies. Even our enemies. He's the one that will judge them if they're misbehaving. You know, and, and I read about Israel, about how Israel, it's this wonderful blessing we call the United States and England. And, you know, there was a day when England was hot stuff, right? When they were, the sun never set on the empire of England. You know, how did they handle that? If you go back and read the history, they were pretty brutal. Talk to the people in India. Did they handle their empire with love? What if they did? What if the British handled their empire and their power with love? Brethren, I contend that they would still be the biggest power on the earth to this day. But they didn't. They handled it with brutality. They looked at those people that they subjugated as less than human. Will we? Do we? Remember, not just the Ten Commandments but those things which are pleasing in his sight. Empathy, sympathy, love. You know. Calm down, Ed. I get, I get to yelling. <laughs> I get to yelling. But, the, but I don't know if you've had a chance to um, get the book, The Galatians, which I authored sometimes back. This is actually the original version of it before it was sent to the church. But in here, uh, it talks about how the promise through Christ, is for the whole world. That the Gentiles are grafted in. And it actually goes on to say in Scripture that their numbers will be greater than Israel. Nobody's left out. Those people that give us all that grief over in the Middle East, well, you know, if Joshua would have, would have done what he was supposed to do, we wouldn't have had this problem to this day because God gave Joshua the authority to change the dynamics of that area. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> and he didn't do it. If he would have done what he was told to do, 
it would be a different world today if we just do what God says to do. You know, I remember growing up, mom would always give me orders. Mom was the disciplinary house. She said, I want you to do this. And I said, well, why do I have to do that? She says, I'm your mother. I don't owe you any explanations. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> she got to say, and I didn't, you know. God is like that. I remember hearing the story, if you read the volumes of Herbert Armstrong, when he started coming to the truth, he kept the holy days and did not understand them for years. But his wife said, you need to do this, Herbert. So he finally agreed to do it, and he didn't get the wisdom and the understanding of what they meant until after the obedience. First comes the obedience, then comes the knowledge. If you obey me, I will give you my Holy Spirit, and then it will lead you into all truth and show you things to come. Sounds simple, I know, but, and I know, I, but I know it's not. If we think we're okay and don't respect His overarching final authority, we are self-deceived. When you're confronted with a temptation on your weakness, and you say, just one more time, just one more time, and then you make the mistake of not repenting later on, after you've committed that one more time, brethren, you're rejecting His authority over you, over each of us. And we have a purpose. You know, this life isn't just a party-hearty, Bible says endure to the end. Uh, you know, what was that song? If that's all there is, then break out the booze and let's have a ball. No, that's not it. We're here for a reason. You're suffering what you're suffering for a reason. You're, you're doing what you're doing for a reason. If you're a tradesman, you're a tradesman for a reason. You know, brother, I want to disabuse all of us of the idea that when you are finally made a spirit beating, Jesus Christ just waves a magic wand and all of a sudden you're perfect. And all of a sudden you have character. And all of a sudden you have skills and ability. If you haven't spent this life working on perfection, working on developing skills and abilities, working on being a leader, a teacher, a priest, a king, if you haven't spent your time, that isn't going to happen. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, prepare for the opportunity and it will present itself to you. There's a lot of wisdom in what he had said. You know, and good works... You know, that's, good works are important, and we, we understand that in the church better than most. But obedience is preeminent. Matthew 7, verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, not, have we not taught in your name? And cast out demons even. Yeah, they were able to do that. And Luke 19, 48 shows that these were not part of the disciples of Christ who were casting out these demons. You don't necessarily have to be a disciple to be able to do that. Because God knows what your potential is just from being a human being. But he says, we cast out demons and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then Jesus said, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Remember what it said? And hereby do we know that we know him for keep his commandments. So all you Sunday keepers who are out there who are ignoring the Sabbath... Think about what you're doing. Think about that first commandment. You may want to get back into your scripture. As a good friend of mine who's no longer with us, had gray hair, lived to be in his 90s, said, blow the dust off your Bible and look it up. 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I said, keep the seventh day. If you're not keeping the seventh day, if you're not doing the very basic stuff, as Solomon said, one of the wisest men who ever lived, it is the whole duty of man to fear God and keep His commandments. And don't play games with what His commandments are. You know better than that. This audience knows that. This this audience understands that. He says, depart from me. You know, and as far as the church goes, as far as you and me, brethren, in this room, and those who watch the DVD on the Internet, and uh, those who attend churches of God, who keep a seventh day and live according to His Word as best we're able, brethren, there are warning in Scriptures for us, too. He says in Luke 18, Christ says, when I come back, will I find any faithfulness? He's talking about the end times. He's talking about the times we're living through. He looks around. He's able to see things that we can't see. And he says, Am I, is there, there going to be any faithful? He's worried about the church. Are there any faithful? Revelation 3 says, At the very last iteration of the church, before Christ returns, he says, Behold, I knock. He says, The church is poor. Not talking about money. Talking about spiritual poverty. Blind naked. And they don't even know it. Self-deceived. That's why I always warn us, you know, it says that to Daniel, Gabriel said to Daniel, go your way, Daniel. These things are sealed up to the times of the end. Brethren, at the times of the end, there's going to be knowledge which is going to be new and different from what we heard before. Are we going to reject it? Are we going to be poor, blind, naked and not even know it? What happens to the ten virgins? Five are wise. Five are foolish. What did we say causes foolishness? Not having all the information. Not having all the facts. Somewhere on the square of the truth, you're isolating yourself. You don't have all the information. That's what makes you foolish. Who's willing to give you all the information? Knock, seek, ask. If you obey me, I will give you my Holy Spirit. It will lead you into all that truth on all subjects. The five wise who woke up went right on into the kingdom with no problem whatsoever. The sleep was not the problem. The sleep sleep is just an analogy for a period of history when there's not much going on. Because when you're asleep... There's not much going on. It's minimal activity. Let me ask you a question. Is the church of God living through a time of minimal activity? Yes, we are. Compared to 20 years ago, the church occupied our lives, what, Jim, seven days a week 20 years ago. We were always going to meetings, going to choir practice, being involved. Sabbath services at the feast, brace yourself, two services every day. And some of the ministers went for an hour and a half minimum. Then there was choir practice. Then there were socials. Then there were, you know, all kinds of activities. I mean, when we we really kept a feast in those days. And going back even further than that, they used to take off the whole week for the days of unleavened bread. There was a first, second, and a third tithe. You know, that, that was strictly enforced in those days. I mean, you compare us to those days, and, you know, it's very different. Very different now. But Christ 
is talking to the church. He says, will I find faithfulness when I come back? Are we poor, blind, and naked and don't know it? 50% don't have enough Holy Spirit in their lives to have oil in their lamps to be able to see. Remember what it said in Revelation, they're blind. They're blind because they don't have the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit that leads you into all truth. All right, we're coming here to the end. Thy will be done. Christ expect, wanted us to pray. Brethren, is Christ coming back soon? Mr. Ed, are you going to give us a date? Yeah, I am. I'm going to give you a date today. Sort of, kind of. If you're 50 years old, you're going to meet Christ in the next 40 years. About. I'm using 90 as the max. Uh, Grandma lived to be 97. So that's an if thing. You know, it's it's just a range. If you're 60, in your 60s, you're going to see him within 30 years. If you're 70, you're going to see him within 20 years. If you're 80, you're going to see him within probably 10 years. And if you're in your 90s, Put on your Sunday best. (laughs) You know, I don't want to be morbid, but brethren, those are the realities. And Christ is coming back one way or the other. And we should think about the end of our days personally, not worry about the prophetic time when Christ might return. Now, I've considered that we can grow lax because we don't see any evidence of His return. That's why I gave you those dates. He's coming back at least... Within 40 years for everybody in this group. I'm 66. That's, you know, I've lived 26 years past 40 years. So when the very prophecies we studied in those days are indeed unfolding before our eyes, brethren, things are unfolding before our eyes. Now, if you've never seen an explanation of Revelation 12 like I did before, was that interesting to you about the United States? And you, it, what does that say? Well, if one of the prophecies is that time, times, and half a time has to be fulfilled before Christ returns, guess what? It's fulfilled. If I'm right, I can't say that dogmatically, and I don't say it dogmatically, because I could be wrong. But sure, it looks that way to me. This is not a time to let down or go back to the standards all around us in this world but rather to hold our feet to the fire of God's Word. Let it be the yardstick by which we measure things in our day, in our lives. Yes, our back will be against the wall. Think of the Israelites at the Red Sea. They got through. Yes, we may be surrounded by evil that can destroy us, like lethargy. Lethargy. So remember, Daniel was surrounded by lions, and he survived. Yes, we may be penalized because of our obedience. Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they walked through the fire and were protected by none other than Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, before he became Jesus. We all will have our Red Sea and our lion's den and our fiery furnace experiences in our life. The question is, Will we have the faith that we will come through those moments into the arms of Jesus Christ? We all have a very real and noble purpose, Father, uh, to our Father. 
The world is depending on us as the first fruits of God. Romans 8 for the final scripture. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. Notice what the goal is here, brethren. To be conformed to the image of His Son. To become like Jesus. Like Yeshua. That He might be the firstborn of many brethren. If we're doing anything that Jesus would not do, or thinking anything that Jesus wouldn't think, that's what we need to change. Because He is the standard. Brethren, that's it. Simple as that. Thou shalt have no other gods before the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.